Okay, let's get started. We want to have plenty of time to hear from our panelists tonight and plenty of time for a lot of the good questions that I know you've been saving up. The Wednesday night session of our missions conference, let me remind you what's coming up. After tonight, we have the Friday night event beginning at 7 p.m., Worship for the Nations, variety of TCF and guest musicians. We'll have international worship, and they'll be uh, highlighting prayer for different nations during uh, the course of the evening. So we encourage you to uh, be here for that uh, Friday night. Also, there's the Children's Missions Conference, which will be for four years old through sixth grade. Rachel Harrison will be speaking at that, and so we encourage you to, uh, parents, get your kids here for that, four years old through sixth grade on uh, Friday night. And of course, Sunday will be our finale with Dr. Ray Smith, ORU Missions Professor. So one of the things we wanted to accomplish tonight is, uh, well, before I do that, something I actually forgot to mention on Sunday, and we'll, we'll probably mention it again this coming Sunday, But we wanted to announce something that we're really excited about that's coming up in about 16 to 18 months. And next summer, the summer of 2014, we're going to plan a church missions trip to Honduras. And we haven't done an all-church missions trip for some time. And we felt like Honduras was a really good location for us for several reasons. First of all, it's in the same hemisphere, which makes it more affordable. Uh, there's a lot of places we could go that we'd love to go, but uh, it really becomes very costly to do so. But at the same time, we, you get a real genuine missions experience going to Honduras. And uh, as we know from the previous times, we've sent teams there. And uh, also, uh, we know that we're connecting with a local church that's already doing ministry there, and any fruit that is born from that missions trip will be nurtured and uh, watered uh, even after we leave and we're grateful for that and uh, last but not least we thought of another ancillary benefit to this what we're hoping to do and we haven't even talked to Sarah about this she'll be involved in this we haven't talked to Warren and Shirley we're hoping they'll be involved with this we're hoping that's right so that's why that's why I'm putting them on the spot right here what we're hoping to do is to develop Spanish language classes conversational Spanish we're hoping that we can get everybody who is thinking about going to the missions trip uh, to Honduras to take a conversational Spanish class, which will not only equip them to do the mission more effectively in Honduras, but it will also uh, equip them to help with some of the local ministry that we do here, because we're in a neighborhood that's 50% Hispanic, and how great would it be if we had a couple dozen instead of three, four, five of us, I mean, I know the Westers and you three all speak uh, fluent Spanish. There may be others in the congregation. Are there others besides you three and the Westers? But anyway, um, besides them, if we had another dozen, 20 people, wouldn't it be great if we had that for when we do Good News Club special events, when we do VBS, we do anything like that. So we thought there's a lot of good reasons to do this. So we announce that now. You'll be given more information when we actually begin to put dates to it and plan it. Dan and Mary Lou are very much on board with this idea. 
And uh, so we're, we're kind of excited about that, and we'll mention it again Sunday so the larger congregation can hear it. The other thing I wanted to do tonight is uh, recognize the Missions Council. You know, the Missions Council does a lot of work behind the scenes, and they really direct our missions program uh, in a very significant way, very fruitful and effective council. So would the members of the Missions Council who are here please stand, and let's thank them for their work. The other one on the council is Dave, who's out there wearing his uh, police cap, <laughs> supervising. Um, and the other thing we thought was really appropriate for tonight, because of the extensive experience in missions that he brings, not just as chair of our missions council, but also his own personal experience with world missions, uh, is Hallett. And we asked Hallett to uh, moderate tonight and to prepare questions and to field questions from the audience when we get into it. So, Hallett, please come, and we'll, we'll get started. Over the, yeah, you, the you, why don't you use the mic. And how long do you want to go, 10? Nine. You, you can go to 10. The rest of us will be leaving at 8.30. 8.30? Yeah. Okay, 8.30. Okay. So, about, about then, yeah. I just have students who just go to sleep. So I, I know those signs. I know the signs of a sleeping class. So, um, well, we're really privileged, you know, I think we all understand here at, here at TCF, really, okay, just act like I'm seeing it, um, we're really privileged to have such a, a depth of experience, you know, we almost take it for granted, you know, that just everybody has veteran missionaries sitting behind them, in front of them, and, and all around them at church, but uh, especially this evening, Bill, as he mentioned the other day, uh, this a wonderful panel of great expertise, and we realize that tonight we can only really sort of touch the surface with the questions you ask, so I hope that, that part of what will happen is just kind of pique your interest, and you know, some things will be said that you'd like to know more about, and you'll ask these people out for lunch or coffee, so just for, for, for the price of a cup of coffee, some, some great intercultural insights and, and these kinds of things. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to first ask you to just very briefly introduce yourselves, uh, talk about uh, where you've been on the field and the kind of things you've been doing, you have done, uh, just for a couple of minutes. And then we're going to ask for the same kind of, of just sort of to individually to talk about how the Lord called you to feel. That'll be coming up next. So we'll kind of do a little bit of that and then start taking questions from, from the rest of us. So Rachel, why don't we just start with you? We'll just, for this, we'll just go down the row and introduce yourself and, and just talk about uh, field experience. Okay. Am I answering both right now? Uh, yes. Not the call. Not the call. Not the call. This is not the call. This is okay. experience. My name is Rachel Harrison, and uh, probably a lot of you know my parents, Randy and Deanna Harrison. Um, so I grew up overseas my whole life. Um, in many different countries, the Congo, France, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and Burkina Faso. And um, I've gone on my own as well to Burundi and uh, Ivory Coast recently uh, again. So, yeah. Okay. I just graduated, so I got my credentials. Hey. So, on the field would be your whole life. Yes, yes okay, my whole life, except for two years. <laughs> yeah. so, that's yeah. Okay, I think everybody knows me here. <laughs> um, and watch me grow up here, basically. Um, my name's Sarah Wright. 
Um, I didn't grow up on the field, but I kind of did <laughs> at the Jesus Inn. Um, just, you know, watching my parents live a life of faith and, uh, you know, no income. That was a very interesting experience growing up. Um, so I think that definitely prepared me for missions. <laughs> um, so we're not talking about the call experience. Um, well, I went to Honduras on short-term trips three times, I think three times, yeah, before I ended up moving down there in 2004 for two years. So um, if you feel a bit of an urge to go next year, I highly recommend it. Wonderful people, love the people. Um, very difficult to leave there, but God was calling me back here. Um, and so uh, on, when I was there, I was serving as a missionary teacher, working with, a, with the youth in the local church, Dan and Mary Lou's church, so I got to know them very well. Um, the puppet team that we established there in 2004, I basically uh, led for two years when I went down there, just developed the puppet team and the interpretive movement team and all that kind of stuff and left them with all of that, so they continued doing that um, regularly, so that, te- that team's going strong. Um, then, um, just in the years that I've been here, I was able to go to Kenya in 2009. Um, I was uh, in Spain in 2011 and also last March. So, I guess that would be it as far as experience goes. Yeah. I'm Shirley Norcom, and uh, we were in Costa Rica for one year trying to learn Spanish and Argentina for 23 years. My main role in Argentina was mother and wife and supporter and counselor. Is this CNN? My name is Warren Norcom and Shirley did an awful lot more than that. Um, she ministered uh, for many, many years uh, singing and, and counseling uh, and uh, being a friend to many, many people uh, in Argentina. A lot of people were affirmed in the Lord because of her ministry. And uh, when she sang in the spirit, uh, uh, it was something to behold. And uh, I really did appreciate all that ministry that surely did. Uh, I'm, I, I graduated in 2002. And uh, now I'm retired. <laughs> and uh, Shirley and I spent uh, 23 years in Argentina and several years, uh, one year in Costa Rica and a year preparing to go to the mission field. Our uh, ministry is very, very fruitful. And uh, in many, many ways, I'm still there. Uh, the idea that uh, you can take a missionary off the field, but you can't take the field out of the missionary, and uh, we feel very much that way. We're in contact with a, with a number of people in Argentina still, and uh, my heart is, uh, in, in, in a large sense, still there. It sounds funny, but uh, in a way, you never become accustomed right. yeah. to coming back home. And uh, uh, it, it's just, a, you're home, but you're really not home. Yeah. So, um, the ministry was fruitful, and uh, we're here now with uh, our families, uh, enjoying our uh, grandchildren, and uh, trying to keep out of trouble. Uh, I've got uh, 
six young grandchildren and two older grandchildren. We have a we're, we live really close to them. Uh, I've started a business, and uh, if you want to know about it, uh, after the meeting, you'll talk. <laughs> and you, you taught and, uh, at a Bible school, which keeps me which keeps me busy for the time being. Yes, I'm sorry. Seminary and Bible school teaching while you're in, in Argentina. Tell them what you did, Warren. Yeah. Oh, I thought that I thought that that came next. Okay, uh, my ministry is mainly teaching uh, in Argentina, but on the mission field, you find yourself involved in everything. Yeah. So uh, uh, teaching was the was the basis, and uh, we did an awful lot of preaching, awful lot of conferences, uh, which involved uh, a tremendous amount of traveling. I lived on buses, and I hate buses. I hate airports, <laughs> and. Uh, hope to never be on, a, on another bus in my life. I think it cost me a little bit of uh, my health and my neck and my back from bouncing on those things. But uh, the ministry uh, basically had to do with uh, the successful Christian life, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how that works out in your daily life. We had an awful lot of, uh, an awful lot of results uh, many, 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 many times where the Holy Spirit fell and uh, many people baptized in the Spirit, many people saved, and uh, we just thank the Lord for the opportunity that we had uh, to take somebody that really wasn't prepared as uh, they should be and, and uh, make them useful in His kingdom. So. Well, the thing I don't miss that I'm really glad for coming back to America is central air conditioning. <laughs> uh, I'm ruined. But anyway, um, my name is Terry Ligon. This is Mary, who's in bed sick with a fever. Since her feverish apologies. Um, we, were, we went overseas to Egypt in 1976 when we were 23. Uh, we didn't know each other at that point, but we met through interesting circumstances, uh, through the secret police. She was being called out before she was deported from Egypt, so I've always been grateful to the secret police of the Middle East. <laughs> done a lot <clears throat> True story. Uh, so we were in the Middle East, where we were overseas for 25 years, um, 14 of it in Egypt in two different periods, and then uh, eight years in Lebanon, working also into Syria. Uh, many of the areas in the news are kind of fascinating to me because there were places that I've gone to and have friends there. It's very different when you read news reports and the reports are about people you know, in a way. I mean, they're, you don't think of it like, I don't say, oh, Aleppo, you know, I know Brother Ramon and I know so-and-so. So, um, that's moving to me. Um, as far as what we did... Uh, we did all kinds of stuff, really. I think a primary call for me and Mary was we, we seemed to be called to work with the church to awaken it to the lost, which were Muslim. That was the lost. Of course, they think we're the lost guys. But anyway. And uh, working with Muslims, but also working with the church in all its varieties in the Middle East, often that's an uncomfortable mix. They prefer the two stay apart. Um, but I have to admit that through all the crazy stuff, we've done some crazy things. 
and seen some crazy stuff. We, we loved it. I'm thinking like Jesus said, crazy stuff. When you step out to do crazy things, you see crazy results. Um, I don't know how crazy, but anyone's they were God crazy anyway. They turned out for good. Um, but um, And still working now with uh, outreach to Muslims for myself and uh, a lot of cross-cultural uh, interaction with uh, various nations, but especially with the Middle Easterners. I'm Karen Chupak. Uh, we together went to Pakistan for two years. Uh, and uh, then we went to Kyrgyzstan. I went to Turkey and Cyprus and then to um, Kyrgyzstan for five years and Kazakhstan for six. And then just recently came back after five years in Russia. Um, <laughs> I'll let Dory finish. <laughs> uh, I uh, like everybody on this panel as much as you do, but besides Karen, I have a special fondness for Brother Norcom. When we were in Russia, I started calling him War and Peace. We did language study in, in Pakistan and we got expelled. And uh, then we started doing Russian uh, language study in Kyrgyzstan and suddenly they needed uh, field leaders for our field which covered um, part of uh, Central Asia including um, Northwest China and Afghanistan and some of the parts of the former Soviet Union. So we suddenly were uh, dropped what we were doing which up till that time was language study. We traveled around and checked up on uh, the other missionaries that were working in all those places. So we got to see a lot of interesting things. And, um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, at this point, um, could you talk about your your decision to go to the field? Um, your we talk about a call. Just t- tell us what what that what that feels like. How you knew what entered into that decision. Some of the things that went through your own mind and heart as you. Uh, concluded that this was what the Lord was going to have you do. And rather than asking just kind of go down the road, just whoever would like to, to go first, just jump in there. How did you know? Um, mine started when I was younger, I think due to the family I grew up in, a Christian family interested in missions and stuff. Um, when I was 10 and 11, I spent 14 months with my family traveling overseas to about 30-something countries. I think that's where it really um, started. It started before that, but that's where I really got a uh, kind of an interest in, um, in serving overseas. And then uh, at the first missions conference here at TCF, Lauren Cunningham spoke, and I just remember that vividly in his um, topic was go means a change of location and somehow it just spoke to me and um, and got me going to the next step of really want you know um, concretely wanting to go overseas so um, yeah so after I met Dory we started working towards that 
Well, for me, most of you know I grew up in a Jewish family, and my mother was really upset when I got saved. And she said, oh, no, he's going to be a missionary. You know, like when you read in, in um, the, the Apostle Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I mean, that's kind of how you do your life. Sometimes you don't do what you want to do or what you feel you're going to do, but kind of like what you have to do, like you can't not do it. You know, not that not that I dreaded it or didn't want to, but it was something that you knew you had to do. You couldn't not do it. I didn't understand that. Double negative. So the fact that your mom said you were going to do it and you had to do it. Uh, no, there was a little interval between the first one. About five years. Well, for us, it was. Uh, a Sunday in July of 1979, and we had a, uh, we thought it was just going to be a regular Sunday morning. We had a special speaker that Sunday morning named Phil Saint from Argentina, and he came to the platform and he said, uh, before I start my sermon, the Lord gave me a prophecy for someone here in the congregation. This couple is about 40, 41 years old. He's an elder teacher. They have a couple of children, and the Lord is calling them to Argentina. Cordoba, Argentina, excuse me. It's Cordoba, Argentina. Wow. Well, <laughs> we um, immediately wanted to crawl under the seats because we thought everybody was looking at us, and they were. <laughs> Our children were sitting in another part of the congregation. They knew it was us, and... Uh, from there, uh, we tried to get out of the church as soon as we could so that we wouldn't have to talk about anybody, but everybody kept coming up and saying, it's you, it's you, you're going, it's you, isn't it? And we said, no, we're not going anyplace, but, but we, we knew it was. For me, um, it was wonderful. I always thought as a child I would be a missionary or a pastor for life mm -hmm. until I married Boring. So, <laughs> because at that point there was absolutely nothing going on <laughs> until we started coming for TCF and we're filled with the Spirit and the Lord called us. Mm. So, so did that, so that prophetic word, I mean, so... Your, your, second chapter. Yeah, your, your initial response to that was, it's not us, but clearly it was. We, we knew it was. Yeah. And uh, there were a couple of other, there was another prophecy uh, that was given to us that very Sunday night yeah. that uh, someone had known, uh, Marianne Stockwell had been told a year ago before that, that um, the Lord was going to call us somewhere. But she was not able to tell us because the Lord told her not to tell us. She told um, Luce Smith about it so there would be a confirmation at that time. So that Sunday night we went out to the pancake house and she shared that with us. And the next morning, um, <laughs> Bill and uh, Bill and his wife was it Mark? Mark was Mark. 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 Mark.
in relation to the Spirit, and we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, made the dedication of our lives uh, completely to the Lord, and and we thought, well, Lord, you know, whatever you have for us is, is what we want to do. Well, be careful uh, when you tell the Lord that. Uh, so there, there we were, open to do whatever the Lord had for us, and we're growing in the Lord rapidly. A lot of teaching in those days, and uh, it was a very, very balanced teaching. Even though uh, TCF had balanced teaching, but there was a there was a number of cookie things going on. But uh, but uh, the pastors here and elders here maintained uh, a real good norm. So all that to say that we felt that we were balanced. Now when somebody gets up on a platform and gives a prophecy, that's fine. It's really great in the church, except for when it applies to you. Uh, and when somebody uh, uh, gives a prophecy that is that is so direct, so personal, uh, right down the line, just exactly like Shirley said. Um, I was a happy businessman here in Tulsa until that day. <laughs> and uh, uh, the idea of going to the mission field, the idea of being prepared to go to the mission field was about the most foreign thought that could come to a person. And uh, when the Lord gave that prophecy, my answer directly was, was uh, ain't no way that that's going to happen. And uh, there, was, there was verification of the prophecy, you know, we didn't just accept it. We went through the pastors, we went through the elders, we asked friends. There were uh, uh, some other words of wisdom given by different people. There was even a prophecy in relation to that prophecy that verified it. And the 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 end the end analysis is um, when you're given a prophecy, what is the greatest uh, verification that it's true? Uh, it resounded in my own heart. I knew it was true. I knew that I knew that it was right. And uh, I immediately started telling the Lord, There's the, uh, I am not going to the mission field. I'm not prepared to go to the mission field. First of all, I can't speak, I can't speak Spanish. And the Lord says, well, you learn it. And so I, my question was going to be, well, you know, how many languages do you know? <laughs> and so he says, learn it. Uh, we're talking about a lifetime of experience there. Well, Lord, I can't teach the Word of God all that good. I've done a lot of study, but I'm not that good. He's, he said, well, learn it, because you're going to be doing it. Uh, well, uh, Lord, I'm very happy where I am. Well, uh, I've called you, and it's just like the Word said, I've called you, and I've ordained you to go and bring forth fruit. And the verse continues. But uh, it, a, a real, real calling. And... Uh, in the next few weeks, uh, with my saying no to God, who doesn't really argue with you, uh, he just simply said uh, to me, uh, haven't I said it, and shall it not be done? And then I'd say something else about why I wasn't going to do it. And he kept saying the same thing. Haven't I said that, and shall it not be done? So, uh, finally, uh, uh, I almost told the Lord, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do it. And um, he said, okay, you don't have to. And I was very, very happy. Uh, the Lord talks to us. And uh, I said, okay, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, uh, you've got a business. You're going to continue in that business. It'll be relatively successful. You might be a successful businessman. 
uh, you've got a good start. You just, you just keep going and everything will be okay. But, and there, there it comes. Uh, but uh, you'll never achieve in your life what I've called you to do. If you don't do this, you'll accomplish things, but you'll never achieve what I had for you. Well, that really hit me. So I said, okay, Lord, you open the doors. You open the doors and we'll do it. Well, uh, I encountered another great truth. Uh, he says, uh, uh, I make the door, you open it. Okay, I'll open it. Well, I found out in the next coming years that the Lord's doors don't open that easy a lot of times. So be careful in saying, Lord, you open the doors and I'll walk through because there are a lot of life lessons to be learned in opening those doors. But in any case, over the, over the next couple of years, uh, we walked through a lot of doors and finally got to Argentina and finally started a fledgling ministry. And from there it just grew. So um, that, was, uh, that was the beginning of our calling. I did not want to be a missionary. Yeah, I did not want to be a missionary. That was actually my greatest fear, honestly. I was, um, I loved the Lord, was serving the Lord, you know, as a teenager through high school, and, um, but I hadn't completely yielded my life to the Lord, I'd say, uh, because I did not want to be a missionary. Um, I, that was my greatest fear. I am a very, I love being home. I'm very home. <laughs> found person. I like to have my roots planted in one place and I like my comfortable surroundings. Um, I was very shy when I was young and I've had to grow a lot. Um, But but anyways, I wanted to be close to family, stay in Tulsa, have family, stay here. So um, I was not yielding to the Lord. Well, I can't remember how, but God opened the door for me to go to Honduras in 1999 uh, with a group from the church, kind of like next year. Um, I can't even remember. I think it was my aunt and uncle Bob and Tina that convinced me to go, but it was definitely way outside of my comfort zone. Um, didn't speak a lick of Spanish, learned some phrases, spoke them all wrong, I think. Um, so I went. It was very interesting because I, I got very sick uh, before I went. I think I had E. coli. And I almost didn't get to go. I, I ended up taking some antibiotic that gave me a rash all over, and it, the doctor had to approve for me to go. And I think that was definitely the enemy because it completely changed my life radically. Um, I just was amazed to see, um, you know, I actually give credit to Dan and Mary Lou. I just love them so much. Um, but I was just amazed to see them serving um, selflessly their whole lives in Honduras for these people and just. The love of the people, even though they couldn't speak to me, I couldn't speak to them. It was just this overwhelming experience that just changed my heart. And um, I came home, really changed. And I wrote in my journal um, that I, to the Lord, that I was yielding to Him completely, that whatever He wanted to do with my life, um, I would be willing to do it. Um, 
kind of like you said. Um, so anyways, that fall I started learning Spanish at TCC because it was required for my major in education. Um, I just needed a language, I thought I'd do that. Well, I loved it, and it seemed to come easy, so I just continued to pursue that, pursue that. Um, then um, I went back to Honduras in 2001 for a summer, stayed with a family there, just loved it, just absolutely was in love with Honduras. Um, and uh, then I went back down in uh, 2003 for a short-term missions trip, then I went back down in 2004 after graduating from ORU, and that's when I went down there for two years. Um, but, um, so, God, I definitely did like a 180. <laughs> um, so that, that's definitely, it definitely changed me, that, one, that initial trip. Um, and then, I guess one other thing to add, well, maybe, maybe I'll add it later. It has to do with like future stuff, so. I think I'll stop there. Okay, I'll stop there. Well, that's probably the other question. Okay, so you don't have to, but Terry or Rachel? Go on, Rachel. Sure, I'll go. Um, well, I was born in the mission field, so it's kind of automatic. But uh, no, just kidding. Um, when my parents always encouraged us to be part of ministry, kind of forced us, dragged us along at the beginning. Um, but when I was in high school, I kind of went through my rebellious stage, um, and uh, we ended up moving to like three different countries in two years and I was, uh, went from one school to the next and I was like, what in the world is going on? God, why are you um, forcing me to move? Like, why are my parents dragging me all over the world? Um, what is going on? And um, it was at that point that uh, through a lot of counseling and prayer and um, had a really good youth pastor at that time, I just came to the realization that God had, in calling my parents, had called me as well, um, at least for that time, to be overseas. And that kind of switched my whole perspective around, because it wasn't that I was being dragged around by my parents from country to country, it was that God was calling me too, even though I was only 15. Um, so that's when I kind of uh, started getting involved in my own ministries, and uh, started helping out at orphanages and stuff, and... Um, so after that, I was um, my senior year of high school. I was like, I'm going to college. Don't really know. Uh, I knew that I wanted to get into education, um, and it kind of seemed like an obvious to come back overseas. But I was like, I don't want that, you know, to be dictated by what my parents did. Um, so I, um, like I said, I'd worked in a lot of orphanages and stuff, and um, I was just sharing with my best friend. Um, on a mountaintop um, about uh, just kind of my dreams, like what I would, if I could have the perfect life, what it would be like. And I was talking about how, like opening an orphanage and working with early childhood education for orphans and all this stuff. And uh, I kind of, I don't know if it was like an audible voice or I just kind of felt like God was saying, yeah, that's what I want you to do, Rachel. That's, that's what's going to happen. And uh, so I was kind of taken aback because... Um, one of the first experiences like that. Um, so that kind of confirmed everything that I was kind of dreaming and hoping for, but it wasn't um, exactly God. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. Terry, you want to come on? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
unlike several here, I was not raised in a Christian home. And by high school, I was an agnostic smart mouth. I think I retain part of that still. Uh, and uh, made, I was a mocker of religion. And uh, I, wasn't, I was raised in a small country town of about a thousand spread over farmland. True story, the only international or foreign person I had ever met until I went to university was uh, a Canadian. <laughs> when he gave me a Canadian dollar, I thought it was like Chinese yen or something. <sighs> so <clears throat> my experience, I thought, God can pluck some little kid out of a podunk town. Uh, I had studied French in high school, but there was, you know, and we all talk like this. You know, what, who was I supposed to practice French with in the middle of nowhere? <clears throat> and then God got a hold of my life in university. Uh, actually, I was witness to the first night on campus by two, uh, I guess, hippies in those times. Denny and Denise, one was a believer for three weeks and one was a believer for three months. And I think that's part of the foundation of why I have such compassion for the lost. I, just, I don't know if I'm gifted at it, but I certainly feel a lot about it. And um, so from that stage of coming to Christ or Him revealing Himself to me and encountering Him, um, going through university about the, I don't know, second year, third year, I transferred to a Christian college my second year. First year I was in the University of Kentucky. So anyway, um, <clears throat> they were having outreaches in the summer, summer missions. And back in those days, forget this stuff of one or two week teen mania mission stuff. I mean, <laughs> it was the whole summer. I mean, so the summer is really like three months. So it's like two and a half months of gone somewhere. And I really wanted to go to the French outreach, except that I didn't have the airfare. So, <laughs> So I signed up for the Mexico outreach simply because of money. And we had our, uh, remember the meeting, the orientation, George Fowler was there, the other guys, was, you know, this would be 1973 or four. And Dale Rotan, all the guys were there, they were the main speakers, small room full of people, wasn't that many. And uh, that was up in Detroit, if you can imagine guys, two carloads of us, mixed gender, drove from Detroit to just above Guatemala. Wow. We got to Houston, and it was halfway. <laughs> so for this little country guy, that was eye-opening. But that summer, you know, and I was trying to learn Spanish. Uh, I wouldn't have said I was amazed about it, gifted at it. In fact, I remember I was required to give my testimony. And I remember one time I shared something in the my team leader, everybody spoke Spanish but me, everybody on the team. And uh, we had to memorize this eight and a half by 11 sheet of phrases, including some things I shall not say over the microphone. But uh, I remember I gave my testimony and I asked the guy, how did it go? And he said, I don't know what you said exactly, but it, w it was passionate. <laughs> my mission's experience. What's interesting, well, this shows you how a little thing, my story's probably more of a journey have you ever had God, I don't think he sneaks up on us, but he, he asks us for something, and we don't know what that something is really going to lead to something else. We just think like, you know, what, what about, it's just, just, just do that. Oh, okay, you do that, and then lo and behold, there's another little, <clears throat> anyway, 
the last week I was in Mexico, and Tuxla uh, Gutierrez, just Chiapas, just above Guatemala. And um, it was the first time to work with people incredibly poor. Um, it was just startling to me. And I remember the last week, uh, the pastor of that little church, we were, I was part of the traveling team, so we saw a lot of different groups. And he took me for a walk after lunch. Now, I don't know, he might have just been being nice to me. He took me for a walk, and he said, I have a question for you. And his, he didn't have great English, but I had, you know, not much Spanish. And he said, uh, are you interested in coming back to Mexico? I said, I'm open. He said, I like your heart. I like the spirit on you. If you ever want to come back, I welcome you. And, you know, that meant a lot to me at 20 years old. Uh, still means a lot to me, actually. And he left me, and I remember as the sun set, I've had twice in my life that's happened, where I've gone for a long walk in the dark and had a conversation with my Father in heaven by the Holy Spirit that a life transaction occurred. And that's what happened that night. I, I said, okay, Father, I don't know what you want with me. I had planned an art career, and I had all these plans, and I said, but if you want me to spend some time overseas, I'm willing. End of sentence. Went home, and I got in the mail uh, a girl who graduated the year before us, and she became the personal assistant to Floyd McClung when he was doing the ARC. And she sent me this little tract thing. It was just, you know, normal. And it said, did you know that Superman speaks Arabic? And uh, she, well, I mean, she was like Mrs. Holy Spirit, you know, it's like she had her plans for what I was supposed to do. And at this time, I'd already had uh, a full paid trip to, to study for a year, two years in the Los Angeles School of Design, which back in those days was the illustration school of America. So I was stoked going to Los Angeles, kind of study art. And, uh, and I'd gone around with my art portfolio, and several in the area had said, you're talented, you could do a lot, you just need more training. So I got this tract, and it's, you know, Nabil Fauzi, speaks there with Clark Kent. And, and so I read this thing, and I was really quite gripped by it, and I couldn't get away from it. Well, I wrote the guys and asked for more information, got it back, and they said, send us some of your work, so I sent them slides, and I got this invite from them, come to Egypt and work on a magazine doing comic strips. And I, I just kind of, little simple me, I put them down, and I said, Los Angeles School of Design, Egypt. <laughs> it's kind of like, and, and you go to, they're not even paying me a salary, you know, nothing. And I, and I just said, okay, I don't know what, what do you want? And as clear as could be in my heart, and, the Holy Spirit, and again, guys, my life was, I wouldn't have said all in order, and I was surrounded by great churches. I probably, unlike you, that was a pretty wild time. There's a lot of funny teachings going around. But, um, they, I just remember he spoke to me, and he said, if you go to Los Angeles School of Design, I will bless you, I will be with you, I will uh, prosper you. But if you go to Egypt, I will change your life. That word stayed with me for, well, forever. But at that time, it just stayed with me. I thought, 
finite. You know, and they asked for a commitment of one to two years, so I said, okay, I'll commit to one to two years. That was my, okay. So I went, and I remember within three months, I thought everybody on the team were married but me. I was miserable, and I had no money, and I didn't understand anything. <laughs> it's out in the street where kids were like this, and the flies were climbing in their mouth, and meat racks hanging out with covered in flies. And I thought, where have I come to? <laughs> what is this place? <laughs> Taxi rides that were like death bombs. And, but I grew to love it. And God got gripped me. And it was there that I met Mary, of course, as she was being uh, deported from the country and processed to that. Um, but what was going to be just a year or two uh, took my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't... There are things I regret in my life, but that's not one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for that experience. And... Uh, and the best is yet to come, says the Holy Spirit to me. Yeah. Oh, many of you hear that same word. Phew. Well, thank you so much, man. Um, at this point, we'd like you to have uh, an opportunity to ask questions. If, probably go ahead and say it if, if, it's, if it's not loud enough, then I'll relay it. You can either ask, you know, perhaps someone has said something that, that uh, sparked a question. So you can ask it of individuals or the panel as a whole, and then they can just take a shot at it either anyway. So, questions? I heard from at least half of you that short term mission was a significant part of your call. And uh, I'm surprised to hear you say that, Terry, because it seems to me that short-term missions are a more recent kind of development in missions. But I wanted to... It depends on how short short-term is, but yes. Exactly. I mean, you, how, do you, how do you define it? But, you know, more and more churches are doing short-term missions. How important is short-term missions in a general sense? And you may speak from the experience of other missionaries you've worked with, but we've heard of your own experience. How important do you believe short-term missions is in, in planting a mission's heartbeat in individuals, either to go themselves or to be consistent prayers, senders, supporters? And I, I kind of open that up to anybody on the panel who might like to respond to that. Well, Jim, my, my, my first thought on that is like now, basically when we had somebody come in long-term, 100% they had all gone in short-term. So maybe half of them knew that they were, that this, I'm doing this, but then I'm going to do a long-term thing when I finish college or whatever, and maybe half of them, maybe some of them, you know, caught the vision and decided. Well, I guess maybe, and if others are going to respond to the question, but maybe a secondary part of the question is, why is that? If short-term missions is so significant in implanting a mission's heartbeat, what is it about short-term missions that does that? Well... <laughs> well, it's the difference between opening National Geographic and looking at the pictures and going and smelling the air and being there. Plus, there's a spiritual aspect. You're in the place of demons and angels and peoples, living souls. Uh, things can touch you in a way that it's much more, not difficult, but I think it is a little more difficult when you're here. Uh, it's true, talking to guys who are high level in groups like Operation Mobilization, uh, Youth with the Mission, some of the more standardized missions, Frontiers, Pioneers, they all say the same thing. 
that they find that of the people, only a percentage go long-term of those who go short-term. But of those who go long-term, it's almost 100% went on short-term. And something God spoke to them during that time, or it was a confirmation of that. Or other people around them who went were confirmed that they were to go. And then people who get gripped. I have, I can't count the number of times I remember once working with an Ethiopian church. They were nice guys. I, I loved them. They, I felt for their plight and their situation. But when I went into the church and started, I signed up to go with the leadership training thing. thought, what have I got myself into? But as I started doing that, going there and meeting them, God began to work in my heart a burden for them that would not have happened, I think, in the same, just sitting in my living room thinking about the Ethiopians. That's my take on it. Um, I think it's extremely important, short-term, short-term missions, um, to plant that maybe a vision in your heart. I remember Dan Covington, when we were preparing, I think for our first trip to Honduras, Dan Covington told us, he said, I just want you to know, you know, you think you're, you're going to go there and, you know, change the world or change this nation. But I just want you to know the change that God's going to do isn't so much going to happen there. It's going to happen in your heart. Yeah. And um, I remember him saying, it just stuck with me uh, so much. And now every short-term team that I've helped with, helped lead, I would tell, I tell them that. Or anybody going on a short-term trip, I tell them that. Because it's true. I mean, you go there, and yes, you do impact people's lives there, and and people, you know, come to the Lord, and that's that's beautiful. Um, but really, the biggest change that happens is in the person's heart that goes. And I just want to say, you know, to anyone who you know gives money to support missions, um, intercedes for missionaries. I would highly recommend that you just go, you know, on a short-term trip. It's not just for those who think, yeah, I think I'll do this someday. Um, I really think it's an experience that every believer should have, a cross-cultural experience. It's life-changing. I just want to say one thing. I think everybody on this uh, panel here spent a lot of time on language uh, study and language acquisition everything. When you go short-term... You're like really gripped with the fact that you can't talk to the people, you know, and, and you see other, uh, you know, foreigners that either can or can't or whatever, and you're like, you just like, oh, I gotta learn the language. Okay. Even though uh, some people do, are very effective, you know, speaking English and using translators, but still, you really want it. You just like, you really want it to be able to talk to these people, whatever it takes, you know, and that yeah. can get you through the several years or whatever it takes to get yeah. there. Uh, to me, short term, uh, yeah, Jim, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask about language acquisition. Um, okay, well, let me see. Warren, do you want to say something about short term? Yeah, for just a minute. Yeah, why don't, why don't you go ahead and then. Okay. I'm sorry, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Warren. I've got the mic and I'm louder than you. Uh, uh, I've been able to look at short-term missions from, from both sides, both being on the field looking at short-termers coming to the field. And, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to be needed uh, in short-termers going to the field. You look at it, and uh, I look at organizations that have sent short-termers to the field, and uh, I guess I could call it a mixed bag. It all depends on why you're going. Yes. If you're going for a vacation, 
it's, it's going to be a mess uh, when you get there. And usually when people go to the, to the field on short term, they're under the head of a full-time missionary that's there. And uh, the full-time missionary takes complete time off of what they're doing to take care of 15 people that know nothing about anything. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they get mixed up in all kinds of things like losing their passports, saying stupid things, and, and you're guiding them around. And I've actually heard missionaries say, boy, we're, uh, I am really glad they're gone. Uh, but, you know, that, that is, that, that's just one side. But the thing is, uh, a short-term missionary is, is completely inundated with not knowing anything. Now, if they go down for a construction trip, well, they, they, they can pretty much keep their mouth closed and build a church uh, and do a great job. Construction, construction short-term missions are really great. Um, as far as ministering, um, like Sarah said, it's an eye-opener. And, and, and Terry, it's an eye-opener. Uh, there's something that can change you while you're there. Uh, I would say that on the balance, it's completely worth it uh, for the few that do get impacted and decide that this might be uh, something that's valuable for, for their lives and for the ones that weren't, well, they had a good time. Their eyes were open. They saw another part of the world. Um, I've actually heard missionaries on the field say, please stay home. Just send us the money. <laughs> and uh, that's a serious comment because uh, they knew how ineffective people that uh, can't speak any language know nothing about the culture and how many problems that they can have that the missionary has to solve. He knew what he was going to have to go through. But in it all, uh, God blesses, and God calls, and God touches some of them. And for the ones that he does, I'd say it would be completely worth it. Uh, for the others, they had a good time. They can tell other people to go. Uh, their eyes were open to a wider part of the world, and they can come home and maybe have more empathy. Uh, more empathy for the missionaries that are there and start supporting missions. I just, just to finish this topic off, I was remembering that um, I had Millard come and speak to a class I was teaching. He, as many of you know, his, he ended up in Kenya because of the short-term missions. Yeah. So that was his first exposure. Lord spoke to him while he was there to spend his life there. So, Jim? Yeah, you know, we have this opportunity now to prepare for summer of 2014. A big part of that's going to be language acquisition. What would you say about effective ways to learn the language? Um, you know, these boxed programs that are, you know, two to $500 versus a class versus... And maybe it depends if you're good at languages or bad at languages, you know, what you do. But you there is no effective way to learn a language. <laughs> um, it's hard work. It's slow work. It takes a lot of concentration, a lot of dedication, and a lot of time, a memorization, work, work, work. Uh, to get it, uh, to take uh, a cursory class 
like to go to Honduras. I'm completely in favor of people learning what they can to go down there. But don't plan to go down there talking Spanish. Uh, you just get yourself in trouble. Uh, you can say some key phrases and things like that. Something is better than nothing. But uh, uh, if I were to help people learn Spanish, that would be the first thing I'd tell them. This is not going to be easy. If you don't want to learn it, don't come back because it's going to be hard. And uh, so, you know, let the people that are here for pleasure please leave and the rest of us, and the rest of us will get to work. And, you know, that's really... Maybe Bill will mask you in. That's really what my advice would be. Um, my opinion would be... I have something to add, though. Um, he's right. Um, but what would really be good for Spanish that I would recommend, um, and actually I was just telling Terry, um, I've been studying Egyptian Arabic um, in preparation to go to Spain, and I've been using the Pimsleur method, yeah, that's um, which was what he recommended actually, and um, it's fantastic. Um, it I don't know how much it costs, because Heather just went down to the Central Library and checked out two cases of like Volume 1 and Volume 2, so we have like 20 CDs to go through and I, I'm learning quite a bit. It's, it's really amazing. The method works um, um, it's, a, it's a specific type of memorization that's very effective where they start with the last syllable and then they build up until you can pronounce the word and I've just found the method really effective. So I'd recommend that. The second thing I'd recommend for Spanish, oh and I recommend Pimsleur method for Spanish because the one thing about Spanish is that it's a ton of syllables in one word. That's why it sounds so fast. Every foreign language sounds fast. But um, a lot of English words are just one syllable, whereas Spanish it's like four to five. So um, Pimsleur method is really good for that, um, to be able to add the syllables on one at a time. Um, and then the second thing is there are so many Latinos, uh, Hispanics in this area. I mean, I have one, well, of course I live in the area, but my next door neighbor and then my neighbor across the street are, are Mexican and I get to talk to them all the time. But um, you can find somebody just anywhere. I mean, through the, the Westers, they have a ton of people involved in the Kendall Whittier, you know, community um, Volunteer circle. Good News Club. Volunteer Good News Club. Talk to a bunch of Mexican kids over at Kendall Whittier. Go to Kendall Whittier. You hear Spanish in the hallways everywhere. You know, um, it's like 70% Hispanic, I think. Even the little Caucasian kids speak Spanish there. It's amazing. Um, so those two things I would recommend. But yeah, get a Spanish-speaking friend and just have them start talking to you so you can start getting accustomed to the rhythm of the language. I'd say just listen, listen, listen as much as you can. Um, one other thing I did that's very effective, sorry, I have lots of methods. Um, go to Mardell Bi Bilingual Bible, and I've used great just because it's just the common language. And just start reading in the New Testament. Um, that's how I pretty much learned Spanish, is just reading the Bible. Um, you can just, it's a cheat sheet, you can just glance back and forth. For, you know, it's fortunate with Spanish, it's the same alphabet, you know, unlike some of the other languages. So, um, that's really great. You can just start reading it and go back and forth and compare the words. Um, and then the really effective way is to get um, music in Spanish or any language you're learning. Um, that's really great for, again, getting used to the rhythm and just the vowel sounds because they hold the vowels longer. And you can get that at Mardell. They have tons of Spanish worship. So. 
Anything I'll else? Add, oh, yeah, I'll add good. one more thing good, yeah. is don't be afraid to be ridiculous and yes. be embarrassed make because mistakes. you will make well. mistakes and you will uh. be laughed at. But um, really just repeating like practice, practice, practice. The more you're around it, the more you're practicing it and trying, even if yeah. you sound ridiculous and you mm-hmm. sound like a two-year-old, um, just practice, practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would 100% agree with those five awesome, um, very practical recommendations. Absolutely true, so I can't add to that. They're perfect. Um, I will add only that, Jim, for, I know you know this, that, People respond to love. I think a primary force in overseas <coughs> is loving the people. And so, uh, obviously, if you're going to, and you think you'll get proficient and you haven't learned it yet, in some languages from English should be a little easier to learn than others. It just varies. But nobody, it's, it's foolish to think a person will be proficient. But at the same time, people respond to your efforts. And because it, it says that you care about them, exactly. that you love them, you're trying to make a bridge, <coughs> even though if you say some funny things or you know make mistakes. And uh, I used to be because I'm so talkative, the more talkative you are, the more mistakes you make, my more famous mistakes. So uh, anyway, you're quite hilarious. Good. Anyway. I think that's a good point because. Ah. <coughs> uh, I had a horrible, horrible time learning Spanish, and I made lots of mistakes. And one time, um, we were living right next to the church, and there was a, a meeting, and they were all coming early, and they just all came into our house and started talking. And in Spanish, you ask permission to go into someone's house. You say, con permiso. And this elderly woman came to the door and asked permiso, and I said no. And it was, I, you know, I never had a good relationship with that woman afterwards. But <laughs> I think she might have forgiven me. But it, it's very hard to learn Spanish. But the people love for you to talk to them, even if you do make mistakes. They they like to hear your accent or no accent or whatever. And um, they were very gracious. And I think that that is a good point. You've just got to talk. And that was my problem. I didn't want to talk. I had Lori do it for me <laughs> many times. Okay. Yeah, one thing that helped me when I was in Costa Rica and we were uh, and we were studying, they had us memorize Bible verses, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to weekly know so many Bible verses in Spanish and had to recite them. And uh, those were some of the first uh, eye-opening experiences I had into the language. I could actually say a whole complicated verse without any mistakes. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I could, I still remember those long phrases. <laughs> later, later I understood uh, what they meant. But it really helped me to memorize the word. Just take some verses and keep up that thing till you can say it, and then grab another one and say that one. Un versículo para nosotros. Un versículo. Un versículo. Mamacita no os ha venido ninguna tentación que no sea humana, pero fiel Dios que no, que no os dejará ser tentado más de, que, de lo que podéis resistir, pero con la tentación le daría la salida uh, para que, para que uh, podrías salir. It's in 1 Corinthians somewhere. <laughs> There have, no, 
taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not suffer you to be to, to, to be tempted. Uh, but will with the temptation also give you the uh, the salida? Uh, Art, Art had a question. Art, okay, from Rachel, okay. Maybe as far as the elders know, part of my lifetime, I've seen no more peace. First time you visited the orphanage for the last time, how was it different? From the first time that I visited an orphanage to the last time? So, so the, the question is just about your experience, I guess, and visiting an orphanage initial and then later? Okay. Okay. Um, well, we moved to Africa. Well, I was born in Africa, but we moved there um, when I was a freshman in high school. And uh, the first time that I uh, volunteered in an orphanage, I was kind of overwhelmed. Um, cause I, I'm not going to cry. Um, I just saw a, there's a lot of poverty, a lot of, uh, kids just left on their own. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. Um, I felt really helpless and, um, just kind of, there's so many kids. I was like, how in the world can I help all of these kids? Um, so, um, I kind of, I started going um, weekly to, to one orphanage and then visiting uh, a couple others and um, I just kind of realized that, you know, the way that you help is just one child at a time, you know, you, you pick one child up, you change their diaper and um, you kind of just go with the flow and um, I think by the, by the end of my senior year I had done a project in this one orphanage, um, so I had gone there the entire year and um, <clears throat> I guess one of my last experiences um, would be just to be able to see the growth that had happened in these kids because some of these kids I had known since they were like, you know, a few months old and now um, they were two, three years old and uh, being able to see what even the little difference that I could bring um, to them and the, the people that I went with um, oh, just was just such a big impact um, on those little kids' lives. And I know that, you know, even that little time that I spent with them, um, I'm sure God God was working there and the Spirit was working through me. Um, so I don't know if that answers. That's but, good. Good. Yeah. good. Um, we have just a, just a minute or two more, so we have another <laughs> question or two. I've got a question for Terry. Okay. Terry, you work with Muslims in Egypt, I do. in Beirut, uh, in Syria, uh, in that whole region. Now you're working with Muslims in, in Tulsa and this area. Are you seeing a big difference in, in uh, speaking to Muslims here as opposed to the Middle East? And uh, you kind of just maybe comment on that a bit. Yeah, I am. I, partly because a lot of the groups that I work with are students, and through they're going. They've come through the filter. Let's say at the University of Tulsa. That's just not any old university. So they're often there in high-level engineering programs. Uh, so they're higher educated. I mean, most that I worked with in the Middle East, almost all the Syrians, which were now down in the Dara area that you read about in the news, right above Jordan, uh, they were the 
put it this way, they were like the Mexicans in Tulsa. They, they would be the guys who would put on uh, helping a building, laying foundations, uh, painting, tiling. Um, so they were the, the, the labor force in, in, in Beirut. Um, because they were that way, um, not all, but most were either illiterate or functionally illiterate. So they could read, but they didn't read. Um, <clears throat> but they were more spiritist oriented. So they talk a lot more about jinn spirits than I would hear at Tulsa. I occasionally hear it, not, not as much as I did overseas. I also find um, groups, when they leave their homeland, they tend to become more, they're the minority and they know it. So they're much more protection, protectionist, it feels like here, of their turf, uh, than they were there. There, it's like everybody was Muslim, you know, the majority. So um, here I can feel that the Muslim community watches each other more carefully. They are uh, quick to defend certain things, even though they may not be highly practicing themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Would you say that in, in, I think you were going this way right at the end, yeah. that in some way these Muslim students are more Muslim now in Tulsa than they were in Tulsa? Or, yeah. or, I mean, at least they, they seem to be proud of their religion and feel like they need to protect it and maybe yeah. have a flag into the ground here. Well, partly is it because we don't have this as much in America anymore. We don't have an ethnic type of feel. I don't, I, that's my take on it. I don't. I think we're such individualists in America that we've lost that aspect. And we have to kind of put that hat on with them. That religion, prayer for them is—it's a family exercise. It's something that people, as a community, do together. Far more than about God, it's about doing the thing. So I'm with Saudis. It'd be nothing for them to say, "Excuse us, guys, we're going to go pray." When it's only a seven-minute exercise, they're gone and they're right back. Unlike I'll tell me to go pray, and it's an hour away, and they kind of don't get that one. It's like, what, what do you mean? So, but they're doing it because it's uh, it's what they do together. It's a community thing. Um, so that can be much more stifling. Um, I found experience is probably one of the greatest um, tools. And here it's like, I find far too many of the students want to shift. If you go, they hear religion, they're like, they shift into philosophy. And they just weren't capable of that in groups that I worked with, the Turkmen and the Syrians and the, uh, the and Lebanon and in Egypt. Far uh, less education, they just didn't think like that. They were far more interested in healing if they were sick, deliverance if there were demons, um, that God was alive and really wanted to do something in your life. So, I don't know if that makes sense. That, there, there are pluses, but I'm not going to get into that, but on this side as well. So, okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, I'm getting signals from the back. We're, we're out of time. And uh, I, I really want to say once again, I, I hope that, that something was said that piqued your interest, that you'll want to follow up uh, with, with some of these folks. So thank you very much. And uh, let's just close in prayer, shall we? Let's stand together and, and, and pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. 
Lord, we, we're reminded once again as we hear these testimonies and how you've spoken to, uh, to these hearts, uh, how much you love the world, uh, how much your uh, heart is toward the world and the nations. Lord, we ask that you would give us hearing ears and hearts to respond to what you would say to us, Lord, the part we might play in this. We give you all the glory and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're dismissed. Amen.